Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm still at Word of Life Florida here in the central part of the state of Florida. We've just finished our conference, a Bible conference focused on Bible prophecy this week. We talked about the major cities in Bible prophecy, and that included Rome, Damascus, Babylon, Jerusalem, and then that city, that four-square city, the New Jerusalem. Uh, that's going to be available if you would like to get a copy of this study. The five major cities of Bible prophecy will have it at our bookstore there in our shopping mall, and it'll be there real soon. I'll tell you about it when it's all completed and up and ready for you to purchase. By the way, we leave here in just about an hour or so. We're going to go over to Leesburg, Florida. It's a Worldview Weekend Conference. Brandon House and myself and a couple of other speakers will be there. The event's going to take place at the Grace Bible Church in Leesburg. And then on Sunday evening, we're going to be down in Dundee, Florida. It's the Winter Haven area at the Church on the Hill. It's going to be another Worldview Weekend Conference, and we're going to have a great time. If you're in that listening area, be sure to come to join us at one of those conferences. Well, we're so glad that you could take 90 minutes of your time to join us to understand current events better as we hear our broadcast partners give us details behind the headlines. We're going to Washington, D.C. first. We're going to be talking with Ken Timmerman. He's an author. He's a journalist. He's a world traveler. He ran recently for the United States Congress. And Ken, I have to tell you, we didn't get into this last week, but I'm so glad that you really didn't get elected. And there's one reason. It looks like uh, the people of the United States of America in the latest poll says uh, that the cockroach is more important in the sight of Americans than the members and more respected than the members of the United States Congress. So Yes, I heard that. That is uh, quite extraordinary, isn't it? Isn't it? But it's uh, unfortunately not surprising, given the performance of Congress over the past couple of years. Yes, that is correct, and that's a shame that that is the case. Well, let's talk about geopolitical activities together. Uh, President Obama has got mixed in with what's going on in Israel in the election there. He said that uh, the leadership of Israel, that would be Prime Minister Netanyahu, has no understanding of the best interest for the state of Israel. Now, it looks like payback to me because Netanyahu was very close to Romney in the presidential election in America. Do you think that's what it is, or what's our president doing? It doesn't sound like he should be doing this type of thing diplomatically. Well, it's a pretty extraordinary statement if it's uh, confirmed. Now, remember, this is a rumor. This is a leak from uh, some source allegedly close to the president. But it is in character. It certainly fits with what we know about Obama's opinion of Bibi Netanyahu and of Israel in general. Look, this is a president who does not hold Israel dear to his heart. This is a president who has a visceral dislike for the Israeli prime minister. The only silver lining that I see in that comment is that... uh, in the same breath that he said, um, you know, he, he made these disparaging comments about uh, Mr. Netanyahu, he also said, well, there's nothing we can do about it, so we're just going to have to live with it. Uh, and I think that is, that is a pretty big silver lining if uh, Obama and the United States government under his direction uh, does not intervene in the Israeli elections. I think that would be a big plus if they would refrain from trying to uh, badger Israel about building apartments and houses in its own capital, I think that would be a big plus. We know Obama opposes that, but if he would just keep it to himself, that would be fine with me. 
It would seem like that would be the best case scenario uh, for him just to be quiet about those things are, are really offensive. I would suggest the same thing to Prime Minister Netanyahu because the two of us, the United States and Israel, need to work together in the days in which we're living, and that's for sure, especially as you look at what's happening in Syria. Now, there are reports that Bashar Assad, president of Syria, and the one responsible for ordering his military to kill some of its own people, now 65,000-plus have been killed. But I understand that Bashar Assad may be living in a warship there in the Mediterranean off the coast of Syria. Do you have any information on that? Well, I've seen that report, Jimmy, and and I'm not uh, convinced that that uh, is true. Uh, I just don't have hard information on it. But uh, the very fact uh, for for him to go back and forth from a warship on helicopter to uh, you know places in Damascus and to meet with his inner circle seems to me uh, to offer himself as a target for the opposition on many more occasions than otherwise would be necessary. Uh, my best guess is that he's holed up in Damascus. He's moving around night to night. Uh, day-to-day. He comes out to meet with the inner core, the inner circle. Uh, He had a public meeting uh, last week for the first time where he appeared at the uh, Opera House and uh, addressed his supporters. Uh, And and he's certainly staying out of sight, but I would be a bit surprised for him to expose himself to opposition ground fire by traveling around in a helicopter. That is a very interesting thought. Well, what about this report? Uh, There is a statement that has been made that Bashar Assad has ordered his military to attack Israel should he fall, should he be taken out, whatever. You think they would follow through if indeed he was taken out? And is this report legitimate either? Well, that's the great question. I I, uh, don't doubt that uh, Assad would give those orders. Uh, That's certainly in keeping with uh, the type of leader that he has been. Uh, Saddam Hussein was similar to that as well. He gave orders to his military to use chemical weapons if Baghdad were attacked in 2003. And the result was that they didn't because they feared uh, too much American retaliation. I suspect that uh, those military leaders who are left in Syria after Assad is killed uh, will fear more the retaliatory strike from Israel or from the United States or from our allies in the region if chemical weapons are used or if ballistic missiles are fired against Israel or Egypt, as he is also threatened to do, then they would be willing to carry out the orders of a dead man. You know, it's interesting to me. You mentioned Egypt, and then you also mentioned the chemical weapons. I want to get to both of these issues. But uh, President of Egypt, Mohamed Morsi, seems to be turning against Bashar Assad, talking about the fact that he had better be figuring out the way he's going to depart and get out of that leadership, give up his position as president. Looks like he's uh, making a turn against Assad, but on the other side of that coin, I would have to think that may well be because of the Muslim Brotherhood's participation in the opposition groups against Assad. Uh, absolutely, I think that's correct. Uh, the uh, Egyptian government under Morsi uh, and Morsi, who is, uh, you know, uh, re repeated the vilest anti-Semitic filth uh, that you could find across the Muslim world uh, in televised speeches that have just become public. Uh, Morsi is a uh, member of the Muslim Brotherhood. He's a leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, and he has pledged Egypt's support to the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria against Assad. So. This has become part of a sectarian battle between the Sunni uh, Muslim Brotherhood and Assad's Alawite minority sect, uh, which are more allied with the Shias, uh, and the Shias obviously being dominant uh, in Iran as well. 
Talk to me about those chemical weapons of mass destruction in Syria under the control of Bashar Assad. Many, I think even our defense minister, the minister, excuse me, the secretary of defense, it's a minister of defense in Israel, secretary of defense in the United States, uh, some of the other Israel's calling for them to, it's time and get in there and take control of these chemical weapons. Well, I think the real fear is that uh, the weapons will either leak to some of the Islamist uh, 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 dissidents, the Islamist opponents of the Assad regime, or that, the, or that the military will actually use them. Uh, we've we've seen these reports in recent weeks uh, about the uh, weapons being uh, put into specialized trucks uh, in binary form, and others with two separate tanks with two separate chemical warfare agents that combined would make the deadly agent that would kill people. Um, and that these trucks have been circulating in, you know, from various um, uh, from depot to depot in Syria, and so I think there is a fear that uh, it may have gotten out of hand. The weapons are no longer under control. Um, such an operation, though, Jimmy, the accounts that I've seen is it would require an awful lot of boots on the ground, troops on the ground, to be able to actually seize control of those weapons. And I'm not sure that the United States, for one, or NATO in general. Uh, has the willingness to do so, and I'm not sure that Israel has the um, uh, ability uh, nor the political capability to do so. Boy, it's a sticky wicket, and it is something uh, that the world leaders are going to have to deal with ultimately, especially if Assad gets to the point where uh, they come close to taking him out or he is forced to resign or whatever. Well, one more item for you. Ken, as we look at geopolitical activities, what about Iran? I understand they've deployed warships to the Mediterranean. What's this for? Uh, this is one of those stories that gives me a good chuckle, Jimmy. Uh, they have their uh, uh, they have <laughs> they have claimed to deploy their twenty fourth fleet, which we learn is comprised of one submarine and one warship of unknown capability into the Red Sea, which uh, is an Israeli NATO. Egyptian-dominated uh, body of water. Uh, my guess is that they are, uh, this is a pretty risky maneuver for the Iranian regime. Uh, number one, they're going to expose themselves to all kinds of intelligence um, operations from the Israelis and, and primarily from the Israelis, and I would imagine the Americans. We're going to learn the capabilities of their submarine. We're going to learn the types of frequencies that their, uh, their surface ships use for their weapon systems. And that's a uh, that's really exposing themselves. The Iranians are exposing themselves uh, to a great degree. Now, obviously, they're going to be trying to use their presence uh, in the Red Sea to do the same thing when it comes to Israel. Uh, my guess is that the Israelis are a great deal smarter than, than uh, the Iranian uh, Navy, and uh, the, uh, the intelligence leakage will be going from the Iranians to the Israelis. Ken Timmerman, he is the man who covers geopolitical activities around our world. We bring a couple of issues to him each and every week for his analysis. And this is key because we need to understand the truth behind, the details behind. Is a report valid or not? Ken helps us to come to the proper conclusion. Ken, thank you so very much, my good friend. We appreciate your availability to us, and we'll talk again next week. Thank you, Jimmy. It's my pleasure. We're going to take a break, and when we come back after the two-minute break, we're going to have a Middle East news update. David Dolan is standing by. We'll be talking about the Israeli elections and another uh, issue or two. So you join us right here as we continue on Prophecy Today.
How do you like your news? You know, Jimmy, folks are listening to the news every single day, but sometimes they're getting that liberal bent, and we want them to have a different look at the news. Jay, that's correct. I have listened to ABC, CBS, and NBC when I returned from Jerusalem back to the United States, having just witnessed a news event in the Middle East, and hear the commentators over here speaking something almost different. That's why I write the Until Newsletter, and it takes the leading news stories of the month. I give the absolute truth behind all the details in those headlines, and then we look at it from a prophetic perspective. I want to give you the insight from God's Word as to how the political is setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. And Jay's going to give you the phone number how you can get your free copy of Until the Prophecy Newsletter. Just give us a call at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Prophecy Today is heard all across the USA on the Prophecy Today radio network, but also it is heard around the world through our website at prophecytoday.com. And Jay, there are many other features on our prophecytoday.com website, like daily news updated out of the Middle East as it pertains to what's happening prophetically. Special reports can be heard right on our website at prophecytoday.com. We have Prophecy Q&A available for you. Questions asked in the past can be answered on the website if you just check it out and go to that particular spot. Prophecy Quiz is available, and parts of our Prophecy Today program, if you should miss any part of it, will be heard the next week right here at prophecytoday.com. And don't forget, you can even email your questions to us for our live radio broadcast. Just go to our website at prophecytoday.com. You'll be amazed, you'll be surprised at what you'll find on our website. Be sure to visit us at prophecytoday.com on the World Wide Web. I'm Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome back to this second segment of Prophecy Today. We have our Middle East news update in this portion of the program. David Dolan standing by, longtime journalist in Jerusalem, and indeed he is very knowledgeable of what's happening in that part of the world. Want to tell you that you can listen to any and all of these broadcast partners if you go to our website, prophecytoday.com, PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. When you want it, at your convenience, you have radio Be sure to remember that because these men say some very important things and you may miss it going by the first time. It's good to listen to it or call a friend and tell them to listen to what these men brought to the table. As I said, David Dolan here with our Middle East News Update. And David, out of the box, we've got to talk about the Israeli elections. Uh, They're going to be held on the the 22nd of this month. That's next Tuesday. Now, I'm going to talk with Winky Madad a bit later, and uh, we'll find out from him how it all goes together, how you put a government together with the election of the Knesset members and then the coalition government, etc. So I don't want to focus on that. But let's do focus on the elections. Talk to me about Netanyahu. Is he going to return to power as the next prime minister of Israel? Well, Jimmy, the um, Friday newspapers uh, always have uh, the opinion surveys, the latest opinion surveys in Israel before the elections. Uh, The Friday paper is equivalent to the Sunday paper uh, in the United States, basically. And um, the latest uh, opinion poll in the Jerusalem Post shows that Netanyahu's party which is running with another right-wing party called Israel Beitenu, or Israel is our home, that the two parties together will get 34 seats. 
and that's um, about one-fourth, a little bit more than one-fourth of the seats in the Israeli Knesset. And that may sound to your listeners like not, <laughs> not enough to form a government, but as you know, many parties run in the Israeli elections. It's not a two-party system like the United States has. There's uh, usually at least ten parties that make it into the Knesset, and um, it shows three, four for uh, Netanyahu, 13 for another party that will be allied with him, a right-wing party, Bait Yehudi, or, or Jewish Home. It's going to get 13 seats, and uh, two other parties allied with uh, Netanyahu now um, are going to get um, about 11 seats. So together... All of these parties, uh, several religious parties, are going to get six or seven seats, polls predict. All of them together uh, form a majority in the Knesset of about 65, 66 seats. So that is the basis that Netanyahu will use, uh, knitting those parties back together again into a coalition. He's had a pretty stable coalition with most of these same parties right now and um, he'll be able to to form a solid government. The left-wing parties, center left-wing parties, are predicted to get about 50 to 55 seats, so they won't have a majority. Some of those parties are Arab parties that never join the government, uh, so it does look like Netanyahu will remain will retain his position as prime minister. It'll take him a month or so probably to form the coalition, a new coalition, but uh, he is the man, uh, it looks like, to uh, continue to head the country. He's come under scathing criticism this week from Ehud Olmert, the former prime minister, who was also a member of the Likud party uh, before he uh, left it to join Ariel Sharon's a new Kadima party. And Kadima, by the way, Demi, which is the largest party in the current Knesset, is predicted to win only two seats, only two seats. So... Um, uh, Shaul Balfaz, the former defense minister, is head of that party. He will come back to the Knesset. Probably uh, with just two seats, they will join Netanyahu's coalition as well. So uh, they're a disappearing party, but uh, Netanyahu's there to stay, it looks like, and uh, is going to get, uh, with his allies, just going to get a majority in the Knesset. Now, David, you use the term right wing. Is that meaning that they're going to be a very conservative body politic when they come up with the final results and have uh, the government in place? And does that mean that Netanyahu's going to stay solid on the Jewish settlements out there, stay focused on Iran as the number one threat, and he's not going to move towards the middle at all? What are your thoughts? Well, um, you know, again, it depends on on, uh, which there may be one or two of those parties that are currently part of the government that don't want to go in unless he agrees to this or that but they're all they're all nationalistic uh, uh when i say right wing i would say conservative nationalistic uh, about half of them are religious they're they're orthodox uh jews they they believe in the the bible they believe in the traditions of judaism and therefore of course they believe that uh that the land that they're living in was uh deeded to them by no one less than God, <laughs> the God of the universe. And so they are pretty certain that they, you know, have a right to be there and should be there and and uh, should be living in Jerusalem and all around it and all of those things. But Netanyahu this week, in response to Olmert's uh, scathing criticism of his um, 
uh, well, basically that he hasn't made, made enough attempts to make peace with the Palestinians, etc. Netanyahu responded to that by saying, look, you know, I, I froze settlements for almost a year. I nearly lost my government as a result. Uh, he didn't say this, but of course that was because President Obama was putting pressure on him uh, to do that. And, and still the Palestinians did not come to the peace table. And they, they made further preconditions, uh, as he calls them. They, they wanted all Jewish home buildings stopped everywhere, including inside the city of Jerusalem. And I mean, that's just a red line for Netanyahu and for his supporters. And as you know, for most Israelis, it's... Uh, uh, J- Jerusalem is their holiest city on earth. It has been for 3,000 years. They don't apologize to anybody about that. Uh, no other nationality on earth that has a, a, a tradition going back that far, the Chinese in, 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 in their country or the, in India or whatever, these ancient cultures, nobody else doesn't have their holiest city as their own, you know, so... Uh, the Palestinians, of course, claim it as a capital, and Islam claims it as a religious center, but if the center of Islam is uh, in Saudi Arabia, is in Mecca, not in Jerusalem, and, and Netanyahu just isn't going to budge on that uh, issue, and a majority of Israelis support him on that. You know, it can be said for sure that the next Israeli government is going to have a lot on its plate. We mentioned, you did, the Palestinian Israeli conflict, the peace process there, the Iranians' number one threat with that weapon of mass destruction. But Syria is still a part of that whole situation that's unfolding there in the Middle East that uh, the Israeli government's going to have to deal with. In fact, this week they asked the United Nations to stop Syria's chemical weapons from going to Hezbollah, so they've got to be thinking about that as well. Oh, they're closely monitoring the situation in Syria. In fact, there was a a picture this week in all the Israeli newspapers of Prime Minister Netanyahu up on the Golan Heights with um, uh, binoculars looking into Syrian territory. The border areas become very dangerous. The Sunni Muslim rebels have taken over that area. The Syrian army's been withdrawn. And um, some of these rebel groups are al-Qaeda elements and, uh, you know, very militant Sunni Muslims. So the Israelis are extremely worried about that. And there was a, a report in the Israel Today magazine this week, a friend of mine is the editor of that, and um, uh, that uh, that uh, Assad, uh, the Syrian dictator, is uh, telling his cabinet that if he goes down, he wants his entire arsenal of missiles fired at Israel. He wants to go out at least as a hero to uh, you know the Muslim world in that he he took action against Israel, such as. Hamas has been doing, of course, from the Gaza Strip. But, of course, the Syrian missile arsenal is much larger. It contains Soviet uh, SS-21, multiple rockets. They have six different warheads on them, Jimmy. They can hit six different targets from one missile, from one rocket. He's got Scud-Ds, the latest, most advanced version of the, of the bombs that Saddam Hussein sent uh, upon Israel in 1991. Uh, he's got a huge arsenal and, of course, a chemical weapons arsenal, one of the largest, if not the largest on Earth. So, yes, the Israelis are very, very concerned, and the, the public is watching that closely as well. And I think that's why the right-wing parties are going to win uh, this uh, election next Tuesday, because they are uh, more likely to stand firm on that issue and 
and on Iran, and of course Iran is Syria's closest ally. Iran has a spy uh, center in near the Golan Heights. They listen to Israeli uh, uh, traffic uh, phone uh, messages and military traffic there, and it's it's a grave grave threat, Jimmy, and it's really something that that is likely to explode this year. It's uh, very very unlikely that this will this will go on much longer. The Assad regime is falling, and Israel is right next door. David Dolan, he's the man who gives us our Middle East news update, and if you've listened for the last couple of minutes, you understand how important it is for us to hear what he had to say to us today in this report. David, thank you so much, my good friend. Appreciate it. We'll talk again next week. Thank you, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll continue focusing on the Israeli elections with Winky Madad. We'll understand how the government comes together as he explains it to us. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set. Every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, right here in the center part of the state of Florida. We're at Word of Life, Florida, Hudson, Florida. We're traveling out of this location for the next couple of days. Go to Leesburg this evening for a uh, Brandon House Conference, a Worldview Weekend, and then tomorrow evening into Winter Haven. More about that as we go through the broadcast. But we're thrilled to have you come back to us for another conversation. I promised Winky Madad would be standing by to talk with us. We found Winky someplace in the center of Jerusalem. And by the way, I think he's on his way to the football stadium. Winky, is that correct? Uh, Jimmy, that's absolutely correct. Uh, in what's called Gan Sacher, uh, Sacher Park. Uh, we have a craft stadium that was donated by the owner of the uh, New England Patriots, uh, who happens to be, if you don't know, the son of a rabbi, and he speaks uh, a, uh, a bit of Hebrew. And uh, my son belongs to a team called the Jerusalem Lions. We have about a 12 uh, team league here, and it's full American tackle football in, in the terms of equipment, in terms of smashing about. Uh, the only thing is that it's an eight-man squad and a 60-yard uh, field, but otherwise you hear the crunching and the oomphs all over the place. Well, I can just imagine what that is like. Well, of course, soccer is a major sport in Israel, but now they have brought American football. 
uh, to the Jewish state, to the land of the Bible. Very, very interesting. Well, Winky, I want to continue my conversation with you about the elections that are coming up on Tuesday, the 22nd, there in Israel. Now, first of all, let me talk to you about the elections, but then I want to get into a conversation that'll help all of those listening to this conversation, eavesdropping on us, uh, to understand how the government comes together in Israel. I did talk earlier with uh, David Dolan about what is happening in the elections, but you brief me. What are your thoughts as it relates to Prime Minister Netanyahu going back to power as the next prime minister? And what about the elections in general? And then we'll get into the details. Well, Jimmy, I caught uh, just before leaving my office a headline in Time magazine, Israel is going to the right. And if you do a Google search, you'll find the same headline in 2009. Uh, So we keep on going right. Of course, the actuality is that the majority of Israel's population is realizing that these type of left-right don't really mean much. If you're for Israel's security, if you feel for Israel's ethos as the Jewish Zionist state in the land of Israel, the land of the Bible, if you feel that we have a right to be here and uh, other all sorts of basic issues, then that's centrist ideology, and that's what's coming around. If you ask me, though, will Mr. Netanyahu be much more, shall we say, um, determined in uh, fulfilling any sort of the political platform he has issued, I won't go along with that. I would say he will try to maneuver uh, without doing too much of upsetting the apple cart, uh, which, of course, is a bit frustrating for many Israelis, especially, for example, having the president, uh, Barack Obama, uh, mention that he thinks that Mr. Netanyahu is a political coward and doesn't have best, Israel's best interests at heart. Did that have any impact on these elections at all? Uh, we don't know yet because it's only the second day since that happened. And I don't think that the party, the Likud, has sufficiently used that in its campaign sloganing. It takes, you know, about a day or so to get these things up. Either the uh, TV uh, commercials, which are unlike the United States, they're fairly very restricted in terms of the time slots and how long they go. Not depends on money that comes from the state. Uh, we'll probably see that tomorrow in the ads in the newspapers. Uh, Friday here in Israel, it's the weekend edition comes out. And we'll see how that how it plays. It it I don't know if we can measure it by the polls uh, until maybe Saturday night. Winky, why do you think? Now I know you can only give me an opinion. You, I don't think you have inside facts. But why do you think uh, President Obama went after Netanyahu? Was it payback because of uh, Obama's uh, concerns about the relationship with between Netanyahu and? Uh, and Romney, what do you think was going on here in the president's mind? No, well, that could be some small factor, but I don't think. I think it's a very basic problem that Israel has with Mr. Obama, who comes from the, I, I hope I'm, I'm translating it well for the American audience, the progressive liberal side of the Democratic Party. All previous American 
presidents, either Republican or Democrat, since the founding of the state of Israel, have been mainstream Democrat, mainstream Republican. And we've had a very good congressional representation of support on behalf of Israel. I think Mr. Obama is the first president, and it doesn't make a difference, his, 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 his personal genetic background, his political background coming out of Chicago, coming out of the liberal progressive camp, is the is is the major element here, and he has a lot of input from Arabs, especially Rashid Khalidi from the University of Chicago, and uh, even the more uh, extreme left wing uh, uh, Jewish groups like Breira and other places. And so he's been very much affected by them, and uh, I think his record in terms of foreign relations worldwide has been so poor, uh, excluding Israel. That explains exactly what his problem is with Israel is. Yes, absolutely. Well, uh, that's another story after the elections. We'll see if indeed it did infect what would happen, the final result in the elections in Israel. Now, I want to ask you about uh, the elections and the effect upon the settlements. But before I do, let's uh, do a little uh, Israeli Elections 101. And let's try to make it as simple as possible. Two simple questions. How do you elect the Knesset members? There's 120 of them. That's the legislative body. How do you elect those members of the Knesset? And secondly, then how do they come for an election to the prime minister? Make that as simple as you can for our listeners, please. I will attempt the impossible. <laughs> Israel is one constituency. We don't have districts. We don't have states. We don't have anything else. And the voting is by proportional representation. If any one party gets 50% of the total votes cast of parties that have passed a threshold of 3%, in other words, in order to cross into that division of 120, you first have to get 3% of the vote. If you do, then you all sit down at the elections committee afterwards. You throw away all the votes of all the parties that did not get 3%, and you divide that by 120, and you'll have to do that several times because there's always remainders. No party gets exactly uh, division. If you have uh, 10% of that vote, you'll get 12 seats. If you get 20% of that vote, you'll get 24 seats, and on and on. Four years or less, and that's the optimum term, four years or less, because at any time, this 120-member Knesset can call for a vote of no confidence. That could bring a government down. They have to start the process over, or the president may select someone else to try to uh, form a coalition government. This is a coalition, only one house of their legislative body, not two like in the United States, the House of Representatives and the United States Senate. It's quite interesting, and they have as many as 18 different political parties who sometime get into that horse trading, as Winky referred to it, in pretty intense operations, and it's a very interesting thing to watch. Never a dull moment as far as Israeli politics are concerned. Well, that will take place on the 22nd next Tuesday when the elections happen in Israel. We'll be on top of that. We'll keep you informed as to how that all comes out. Talk to me now, though. When the election does take place, Winky, 
what kind of effect, or will it have an effect, on the Jewish settlements, those some 500,000 people living out in those some 200 settlements in Judea and Samaria? Will it affect these settlements and their life into the future at all? Well, I can give you one example that will connect to the previous uh, issue that we discussed. If, for example, uh, one of the parties, be it the uh, uh, Jewish Home Party or, or one of the other parties, says, we want major portions of the Levy Report, which was drawn up to review the legality of uh, Jewish communities in Judea and Samaria, but beyond the Green Line, and the status of the various outposts and other communities that perhaps have been unauthorized up until now, if they make that a, uh, a condition for joining the coalition, that would be a major coup. Uh, in other words, they say, we won't join your coalition unless you commit within the next two years to adopt major portions of that report and therefore ease the, the claim of illegality or outlaw or maverick outposts uh, which is not really true. It's just a matter simply of the planning or zoning commission has not given its full approval yet. Uh, that could be an example of how we could benefit uh, and also show how the coalition is, is built. Uh, we hope also that there will be major changes in the civil administration authority under the military governor. We have had a problems with the legal department, uh, over the past couple of years, Mr. Barak, who's a former labor member of Knesset, he's now a uh, independent, shall we call it, uh, he managed to get left-leaning lawyers into that legal department, which can gum up the works, shall we say. So then, indeed, there is going to be some type of an effect on the Jewish settlers out there. Well, God brought into existence, he instituted human government way back in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, after Noah and the flood took place. He brought human government into existence, and it has affected this world throughout all of the ages. But we've read God's prophetic word as well, and human government will be used to accomplish God's will among the Jewish people. And that will is that they get the land that God has promised to give them. Would you not agree that man may be elected to govern a people, but God is still in charge? Well, as we say in Jewish theology, uh, the miracles that we see are that God allows us to make choices and gain achievements in the most difficult of situations, despite odds that perhaps are against us, but doing it in a quite normal way. That is the miracle. I mean, it's easy to snap a finger and have something change from blue to white. The hard miracle is making it seem easy when it's very, very difficult. That's the grace that God has given us in his involvement in this world. Wow, that's a great explanation, Winky. I appreciate it so very much. Well, everything you've talked to me about today, how the Israeli government comes to power, their legislative body, the Knesset, and then how they elect a prime minister. We tried to make that simple for you so you can understand it. We'll stay on top of the story so you will be able to receive the end result as well. And now Winky telling us 
how God is still in charge, even though human government is in place and may not seem like it's happening, but it is. It's not as simple as a click of the fingers. It is unfolding before our very eyes. And that's why we have conversations with people like Winky Madad, very brilliant guy, very on top of everything that's happening in that part of the world. Winky, uh, the best to your son as he goes into this football game tonight. Thank you for taking a moment before you go to the game itself to spend some time with us, and we'll talk again real soon. Thank you, buddy. Jimmy, thank you very much. Goodbye to you and our listeners. You know, I always enjoy having a conversation with Winky Madad. He's a man very practical, going to his son's football game. American football there in Jerusalem, that's great. But he brings to the table information that we need to know as we look at the events unfolding there in Israel and how to understand how the government comes together, I think, was very profitable for us today. Well, a man who covers the entire European continent, and in particular the European Union, is Dr. Rob Congdon. He is a longtime broadcast partner with us. We have him on almost every week. When he's traveling, we try to catch up with him because we want to hear what he has to say about the developments unfolding there in the European Union. And Rob, we have focused on the elections upcoming in Jerusalem, and I want to ask you, from your perspective there at the European Union, what are they thinking about, or are they talking about saying anything about these elections, and will it make any difference to them whether Prime Minister Netanyahu is put back in office or not? Well, basically, uh, there's actually relatively little talk about the election itself. Uh, In their view, it's an established fact that he's going to get his next term of service, and therefore they're going to have to be working with him. So they're, they're really looking ahead to where do they go from here. And uh, so there's actually been relatively little, if you will, chatter about uh, the election. Uh, they, they're just going to wait until it's done and then take some steps. Yes, that's about all you can do, basically, if you're another government or a political body someplace around the world. Well, there is an interesting development as it relates to the European Union and Israel. For many years, the Jewish people in the state of Israel stopped to remember the Holocaust. They remember those six million Jews that died during that horrific time during World War II. The United Nations set up a date in the month of January uh, to remember It was called Holocaust Remembrance Day to remember those six million that died. And I see now that the European Union has just signed on to this, and they have put it on their official calendar. Why so long for this to happen? Any difficulty at all about doing that? Or is this just a normal thing that took place? I I think it really is just kind of a normal thing. The focus of the European Union has been on many other areas, and they're not... Um, you don't see them proclaiming a whole lot of special days. Uh, They're more day-in and day-out business of running the European Union. Uh, So in one sense, that explains why the long delay. In the other sense, though, it shows the significance of this, the fact that they are now going to have a Remembrance Day, I think uh, speaks very well of them and of a, a general recognition of the need for it. Uh, as many of those survivors have died off from the Holocaust, and they're they're certainly looking around and seeing a growing anti-Semitic world within Europe. I I think it speaks well of those people who have pushed for it and have achieved it at this time. So there is value in it. There is significance in it. 
and um, the fact that it is an official day, I think, does lend some real value to it. You know, Rob, that's great insight. One more thing with Israel and the European Union before we uh, change the subject and focus on what's happening as it relates to the EU. Uh, I understand, reportedly, there has been a decision to put together a new Middle East peace plan by the European Union. I guess that would come under the auspices of Catherine Ashton, who is the chief of foreign policy for the EU. Do you know anything about this? Well, yes. Um, again, after the election, uh, I think you will see this plan really pushed by the European Union uh, and Catherine Ashton. It fits very much her personality. She will use the quartet, that's the United States, the UN, the EU, and Russia, to put forth a, a new peace proposal. Uh, basically, Europe, I always stress this, they're really preoccupied with their economics. That is concern. That is the day-in and day-out life of the European and keeping his job, etc. But secondary becomes the Middle East, uh, as we saw with the events just recently with France and Mali. Uh, the Europeans think of these many countries, including the Middle East, as former, if you will, colonies or protectorates, which they have close relations to. They want to see the peace process begin again. They see it as totally stagmented. They see it not moving anywhere. So they're going to offer a new Middle East peace plan, uh, but if you look at it, it isn't so new. It's just getting a new emphasis. You mentioned Mali and connection with France. Uh, boy, there's something going on there. Uh, the French army has uh, said they're going to stay in Mali to its safe for the citizens of France there. What is developing over there? Talk to me about that. Well, uh, there are many Frenchmen, women too, of course, in the country of Mali. It's a former colony of France. Uh, there's been grave concern as Islamic groups have started to push to overthrow the government through uh, conquering, through starting in one area of the country and moving forward. Uh, these forces, these Islamic forces, are well supplied with weapons and uh, ideas and good leadership, and so they're trying to turn it into a totally Muslim state. Uh, there has been many urgings in over the last uh, weeks, several months, of saying we need help down here. And finally, uh, France has responded. The EU has been very aware of it. They have talked about it. But once again, we're seeing an interesting situation where uh, action isn't taken by the EU. Remember, they have no army, so they can only kind of influence and urge. And in this case, France has taken the action, and they've gone in to, if you will, help out the government forces, and those forces that would not be representing the Muslims that are trying to take over the country. Uh, a significant move by France, both in terms of the effect on Africa and protecting it from the Islamic onrush, especially North Africa, but also I think really they need some commendation because remember, when they do this, at their, right behind their back in France are many Muslims who could potentially become serious problems at home because of the French action. So we need to watch it. Uh, it is significant, though, for the stand they have taken. Well, I want to ask you about the possibility on the ground there in France in a moment, but uh, for those who may be eavesdropping on the conversation, Mali is located in the northern and the western area of the continent of Africa. If you can picture in your mind Africa, the northwest is the location for Mali. Now, the Mali-based Islamist, uh, to go along with France's involvement down there, 
the Mali-based Islamists are pledging to attack France on the ground in France itself. This could develop into something, and you just mentioned, and you just mentioned all of the Islamic peoples who are living there in the area of France. This could develop into something really bad. Uh, it really could. Uh, we have we have friends there who uh, have been working with some of the very people who you know uh, are in France that are in the Muslim areas. So it is a concern. Um, Europe will be watching it closely. Uh, hopefully, from their viewpoint, nothing will spread out of Africa. But you know, northern Africa is very significant too, and so uh, they've got to watch it carefully. And they they've stepped up their protective measures in France, and, and as you can guess, uh, I'm sure the French are very alert. One of the things I always notice when I'm in Europe is people look around and watch things. If somebody leaves a bag at an airport, even for a minute, somebody in Europe will contact an official. In the U.S., it could sit there for 10, 15 minutes. Nobody would even think of it. They are much more security conscious, and so I, I think as a whole we'll see France uh, secure in this situation. Rob, what's the EU's approach to this? Are they backing France and what they're doing there in Mali? Oh, absolutely. Uh, again, the EU has no army. I think these type of events are going to be pushing the EU to create its own rapid army. But right now, uh, they're glad that France is doing it. They are very supportive of it. The other nations in the EU are fully behind it. And so uh, for France, it's a full go-ahead. Rob, you sent me during the week an article, a report that I think is very, very interesting, and I think it has a very great significance as well, was about the enlargement of the European Union and the possible next eight member states for the European Union. Now, is this going to change everything? Just talk to me about this. Well, I always suggest uh, to the listeners and people that I meet, look at maps. When you hear of a country that you're just not familiar with, look at the map. It'll tell you a lot. If you look at the map of the continent of Europe, you'll see there's a whole segment of countries, the Balkans, they're called, that have historically been very significant. Some of them border the Mediterranean. And those countries are important to several countries, for instance, Germany and others. And if you look at the map, we see there are eight countries seeking admission to the European Union. That would enlarge it up to 35 countries. The EU's goal is 109 countries, ultimately. But if the Balkans could be incorporated, all their separate countries, uh, you now have the EU's land area very much what the ancient Roman Empire was at its peak. So Croatia has been approved for membership. It will enter this July and become the next country. Uh, that opens seaports to countries like Germany, but it also opens the doors to bring in Bosnia, Serbia, Montenegro, Kosovo, um, Albania, uh, uh, some that have already in, but some that aren't. It kind of completes the map. And so it's very important where it's going. Enlargement is significant to the EU. And as one person said, this is part of the empire building in Europe, and it will bring it to its completion. Well, it will complete the continent part of the empire and the restoration of the Roman Empire. Uh, Northern Africa is the other part in the Middle East that's still needed. And even though the EU has very close relationships to those countries through their neighborhood policy, technically they're not yet officially part of the EU. 
I was in Serbia not too long ago, and a Christian leader there reminded me as we were looking at the history of the Balkan area, which you're referring to right now, he wanted to remind me that that was the doorway for the Islamic world to enter into Europe, and that kind of fits in the entire conversation we've been having. But boy, when you talk about uh, the finishing of the empire, the geographical location of the original site of the Roman Empire, that does have prophetic significance. We're moving closer and closer every day to what God's Word said will happen, are we not? Well, absolutely. Uh, We are moving there. What we don't know is when we're going to be at the day, but we are moving closer and closer. And every conversation I have with Dr. Rob Congdon, it seems we do get closer and closer, as he just said. Rob, thank you so very much, my good friend. You're a key component of our broadcast activity, a broadcast partner for Excellent. We appreciate your insights and helping us to understand really what's going on on the continent of Europe, on the European Union, and on the rebuilding of that empire that we often talk about. Thank you so much, Rob. So good to be with you. Dr. Rob Congdon and talking about that empire, that revived Roman Empire that is going to come into existence. This happens, of course, after the rapture of the church, and it begins to bring into place that seven-year tribulation. Well, we always appreciate having Rob Congdon along with us as one of our great broadcast partners, as I've just said. Hey, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, a very special interview with Rabbi Yoel Karen about the next Israeli government and the building of the next temple. That's all ahead, right here on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. In this segment, we're going to have a conversation with Rabbi Yoel Karen. He's going to talk about the potential effect upon the rebuilding of the next temple as the new Israeli government comes into power. You do not want to miss that conversation. By the way, our poll question, if you go to our website, prophecytoday.com, you'll find the poll question on the left-hand side of the home page. Here's the question. As the world watches the nation of Israel holding national elections, this event gives us tangible evidence that this young nation is a reality after 2,000 years. Ezekiel chapter 37 verse 8 foretold the creation of a Jewish state after 2,000 years of the Jews being scattered across the four corners of the earth. Do you believe that indeed the Israeli elections are a fulfillment of Bible prophecy for the last days? Be sure to go to prophecytoday.com and answer that poll question. By the way, when you're there, look at PASS, P-A-S-S, double-click on it. It'll tell you how you can become a member of the prophetic army of senior saints and be used of the Lord to teach the next generation about Bible prophecy. Now to these microphones comes Rabbi Yoel Karen. He's a longtime friend of us here on Prophecy Today, and he basically focuses on activities surrounding the Temple Mount and the preparations to build a temple on that Temple Mount as well. So we call upon him to give us insight. He knows all the players. He's involved in what they are doing, and he's a great source for us here on Prophecy Today. 
Yoel, thank you for being available, buddy. We have the upcoming elections. I want to get to that in just a moment and any effect that that may be upon the preparations to put that next temple up on the Temple Mount. We'll get to that right after I want to ask you a question about the Temple Institute. Now, I saw an article in Arutz 7 where they were moving the lever uh, to another location indicating that they have changed the location of the uh, Temple Institute, which was located in the Jewish Quarter in the Old City. Uh, Did they indeed move, and where did they move, and why did they move? Well, they they are moving. I'm not I'm not exactly sure how much they're moving, and at uh, at what stage that everything will be moved out of the current location. But they do have they do have bigger facilities. There used to be a very very large bookstore. It was one of the largest bookstores in all of Jerusalem, right there at the top of those steps that go down to the to the western wall and to the Temple Mount, and it was called uh, Moriah Bookstore. Bookstore. And apparently, the Temple Institute has acquired that entire space, and so so that that is that will expand their their square footage by by leaps and bounds. Because, as you know, the, the area that they had there in the old city was was quite small and cramped, and now they have a much much larger space, which means you know indirectly that that they're, they're getting a lot more financial backing. So that's that's a, that's a really good sign that that they're becoming every day. The Temple Institute is becoming more, more and more. Uh, mainstream, more and more just part of the tourist scene and, and, and a natural part of the scenery of, of Jerusalem. Well, and they've just, it seems to me then, if I recognize the location, I remember that bookstore right at the top of the stairs coming up from the Western Wall Plaza. Uh, that's just down the, the, the little road there from where they were, and they could probably use both facilities for what they're doing. You're talking about the fact that they're expanding, meaning that uh, they're becoming more mainstream. Now, the last time we had a conversation, you said that basically all the implements had been prepared, the priestly garments were prepared, the men who had been trained to do the priestly duties, they were basically trained, but now it was the responsibility of all of you who want to put a temple on the Temple Mount to set the mind of all of the Jewish people looking towards the building of a temple. Is that a part of the process now that indeed they want to grab the the thought process of Jewish people and help them to recognize what needs to be done? But at the same time, you're talking about it being right there on the avenue of the tourists, the Christian pilgrims that come into Israel, and always I take my group there to let them see what's going on. Is that a part of the whole scheme in their moving to a larger facility? Absolutely, because as, as you know, about uh, probably two years ago or so, they built a small mock-up of the, the, the Holy Altar. And what they did was they built it on the smallest scale that it could possibly be built according to Jewish law and still be fit for use. It's basically, you know, one cubit by one cubit, and it's, it's a very small altar. They, they, quite honestly, they just didn't have the space where they were. And from what they've told me, what they're, what they're about to do with this new larger space is build a much larger, much more grand, um, uh, like I said, a mock-up of the altar. It won't be an actual altar used in services, obviously, because it's not on the Temple Mount, but it will be much, much larger and much nicer and could possibly be used to, to help train priests actually walk up on the altar and practice what they would what they would do, where they would lay the different pieces, how the wood would be stacked, because there's a certain order for, for everything that goes on on the altar. So that's that. Yeah, that is part of it. And when when people see 
it was a big thing when people actually got to see and lay their eyes on an actual kosher Jewish altar for the first time in many, many hundreds of years. And so then to see one much nicer, much bigger, much closer to the scale that could actually be used on the temple, it, it'll again, it'll have another a psychological effect, be much more uh, awe-inspiring to people when they see it. So that, like you said, it's, it's really there to change the minds and hearts of people and get them prepared. That's what's going on right now. Now, as I understand it then, both Jewish and Christian visitors to the Temple Institute will be able to go in and see this in a larger facility so it'll be easier to work around and, and look at what is ultimately going to be up on the Temple Mount. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's the purpose behind the entire thing. Now, let me ask this question. I, it probably does not need to be asked because I know all the personalities there. I've known them for over 20 years. I documented what they were doing way back in 1991. But this is not simply a tourist attraction. These people are serious about preparing the implements, training the people, the personnel who will need to operate the temple and ultimately go up there. They're just simply waiting for the opportunity to enter the Temple Mount and start erecting that temple. They're real serious, aren't they? Absolutely. The, I mean, the, really, the, the founding principle behind the Temple Institute was that you know the government will not let us do what we want to do, which is to go up and rebuild the temple. So in the meantime, until the hearts and minds of the people are changed and they're ready for it, we'll do what we can do. We can start building the implements. Nobody can tell us that we can't build a, a seven-branch menorah. Nobody can tell us that we can't build the shovels and the big meat hooks and forks and, uh, and everything that needs to be done, the high priest's garments, the garments for the, for the regular priests and the Levites. Nobody can stop you from doing those things. And you know, it, it was a really good thing because we found out very quickly that we weren't quite ready. We hadn't done these things for thousands who build seam, you know, make seamless linen garments and everything. It took a, many, many years of research and trial and error until it got right. As I know I've mentioned several times, it took 10 years of research to finally finish the high priest's breastplate. So really, I mean, it's only been in the past couple of years that we could say we have everything and we're ready. That's an exciting report. And many of us who have been to the site right now where the Temple Institute is located and have to crowd in there to be able to see these things are going to be very excited about this expanded facility right there in the Jewish quarter of the old city of Jerusalem. Now, as I'm mentioning that phrase, the Jewish quarter, that means the old city is divided into four parts. You have the Armenian section, you have the Christian quarter, you have the Muslim quarter, but then you have the Jewish quarter. If I remember my history correctly, is not the Jewish quarter where most of the priests would have lived when the temple was being operated in the temple in the Temple Mount area some two thousand years ago? Right when the when the temple was standing, what today is called the Jewish quarter was called the Upper City, and this is where the wealthier the the priestly class, the aristocrat, the, the aristocracy of Jerusalem, this is where they lived. Is in the Upper City, and you can actually see and down <clears throat> if you're standing. In, up in the Jewish quarter, looking down at the Western Wall, where everyone's standing at the Western Wall, just it would have been a little bit lower. If you see the Southern Wall excavation, you can see where the ancient street level was. That was what was called the Shuk of Jerusalem. That was the ancient marketplace down there. And there were all sorts of people mingling in and out, people that were 
uh, ritually impure, people that were not ritually impure, and they were all mingled in there. No one really knew what the status of what was going on down there. So these priests who had to keep themselves ritually pure to go do their service in the Temple Mount, they had bridges that took them from the upper city, from the Jewish quarter, all the way over to the Temple Mount without ever having to go down into the shuk, into the marketplace, and, and not know if they had contracted uh, ritual impurity on themselves before going into the house of the Lord. So you can still see, if you look over the far end of the men's side of the Western Wall Plaza, you see sort of a few archways, and, and the biggest of them, you can actually go inside, and you see this massive archway. These are part of the, the supporting arches for that big bridge that took the priests across and over to the temple without having to, to come down into the, into the marketplace. Now that was 2,000 years ago, and am I correct now that many of the Jews living there in the Jewish quarter are of the Orthodox persuasion? They're observant Jews, but really they look forward to the building of the temple, and one of the reasons that they have tried to be able to live in that Jewish quarter today. Absolutely. That's, that's why they're there, and, and thank God we've even got a good deal of priests in there. One of your good friends, Rav Nachman Kahana. That's that's precisely what his name means. Kahana comes from Kohen. He's a he's a priest, and so is his brother. That is a thrilling story of what is going on today. Well, elections upcoming next uh, week, and indeed, I'm wondering the results of the elections there in Israel, whether Netanyahu is brought back to power or not, or whatever happens. Let's think about. Will these elections, or any elections in the future, hinder or help uh, the rebuilding of the temple? Is the Israeli government interested in seeing a temple built on the Temple Mount? I would say that the Israeli government at large, as as a whole, is not so interested in seeing a temple built. But one of the the key things that's going to happen during this election, God, God willing, is it's almost a certainty now, according to the polls, that Moshe Feiglin will get a seat in the Knesset, which he's been after for many, many years. And they have pulled every trick, Netanyahu has pulled out every trick in the book to keep him off the list and to push him down on the, on the list and to keep him from get, taking a seat. And it's almost a certainty now that he will get a seat. And this is a man that has promised that if he ever becomes Prime Minister of Israel, the first thing he'll do is go up on the Temple Mount and give thanks to God for, for allowing him to become Prime Minister. This is a man who very much wants the Temple He's regularly on the Temple Mount. Every, at least once a month he's there. He's, he was hauled off just a, a few days ago for, for bowing down and praying on the Temple Mount. And he's a real fighter. And in addition to that, we have a, another party. The, it's called Otsmali Israel, the Strength for Israel Party. These men are very, very pro-Temple. And they're projected to get two or three seats. Possibly more, but I think that they're, they're wavering between two and three seats right now. So very, very positive outlook here. This, this, this next Knesset, this next government, will be definitely an improvement for the, for the Temple Mount situation. Well, human government does make decisions today affecting all of our activities. And, of course, we're talking about now the rebuilding of the Temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and the Israeli government not too interested in that taking place. It'll be a very controversial situation if it does come to pass before you have removed all the Muslims from that area. The Dome of the Rock, of course, a Muslim commemorative building. And the Muslims now control with the Islamic Trust. They control the Temple Mount. That's human government. 
But uh, am I not correct, Rabbi? According to the ancient Jewish prophets, God's government is going to guarantee there will be a temple someday, maybe not too long into the future, there on the Temple Mount. That's right. There's, there's one king and one father, and, uh, and that's who we ultimately rely on because we know that he's the source of all blessing, and he's, he's the decision-maker. Thank God for that. He's the decision maker. Amen, amen. Well, that's great, Rabbi. Rabbi Yoel Karen, a dear friend of ours, he's a man on top of what's happening as it relates to the Temple Mount, preparations to build the next temple, and all the personalities that are involved in that. Yoel, thank you so very much for being with us. We'll talk again real soon, I'm sure, down the line. Thank you. That was one very interesting conversation. You may want to re-listen to that. Go to my website, prophecytoday.com, PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network is where you can listen to it. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I'll take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set. Every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Prophecy Today is heard all across the USA on the Prophecy Today radio network, but also it is heard around the world through our website at prophecytoday.com. And Jay, there are many other features on our prophecytoday.com website, like daily news updated out of the Middle East as it pertains to what's happening prophetically. Special reports can be heard right on our website at prophecytoday.com. We have Prophecy Q&A available for you. Questions asked in the past can be answered on the website if you just check it out and go to that particular spot. Prophecy Quiz is available, and parts of our Prophecy Today program, if you should miss any part of it, will be heard the next week right here at prophecytoday.com. And don't forget, you can even email your questions to us for our live radio broadcast. Just go to our website at prophecytoday.com. You'll be amazed, you'll be surprised at what you'll find on our website. Be sure to visit us at prophecytoday.com on the World Wide Web. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. On Prophecy Today weekend, a special edition of Prophecy Today, focusing on the Israeli elections, we had David Dolan come and discuss the elections with us. It looks like Prime Minister Netanyahu will be returned to his position as Prime Minister because he'll be able to put together a coalition government that will accomplish that goal. By the way, we had Winky Madad, a broadcast partner with us, who told us how the Israeli Prime Minister comes to power, how he is elected 
through the process of a coalition government. And we looked at the Israeli elections from the United States and European Union standpoint with Ken Timmerman covering the geopolitical activities headquartered in Washington, D.C., and Dr. Rob Congdon with our European Union update and helping us to understand what their thinking is about the Israeli elections. Rabbi Yoel Karen talked with me about how this next government, the Israeli government that will come to power, might well affect or even hinder the movement to rebuild the temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. By the way, all of these conversations that I had with our broadcast partners can be heard at prophecytoday.com. You go to our website And there you can go to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. This is radio when you want it, when it's convenient for you, when you have opportunity to sit and listen to the broadcast. You know, even the discussion of an Israeli election in the Jewish state of Israel is tangible evidence that Bible prophecy has been fulfilled and will be fulfilled in the future. Let me take a moment to explain what I'm talking about when I said even the fact that the Israeli elections are taking place is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. You might remember back 2,000 years ago, just at the time of Christ, at the end of his ministry, when he ascended into the heavenlies, he was making a statement that seemed strange at the time. He walked away from the Temple Mount in Matthew chapter 24 is the record of this incident. He said that there would not be a stone upon a stone on the Temple Mount. And then he went over to the peak of the Mount of Olives and he told his disciples what would happen in the future. Well, those things he told his disciples are the signs that the Jewish people can look at to understand the times in which they are living. I'm not going to go into that right now. It's recorded there in Matthew chapter 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. What I want to have you recall is the fact that the Lord when he walked off of the Temple Mount, before he gave that Olivet Discourse, said there would not be a stone upon a stone on that temple. It was majestic in the Jerusalem skyline. It was the most beautiful building in all the world, according to General Titus, who led the Roman army to destroy that temple and actually be used of God to fulfill Bible prophecy. Jesus said it would be taken down and not a stone upon a stone. And when General Titus allowed his army to come down and destroy the temple, they took it apart stone by stone. Well, this was a fulfillment of Deuteronomy chapter 28, where the Lord said through Moses to the Jewish people, if you don't obey God, you'll be scattered to the four corners of the earth. Now, this is another example of God using human government to accomplish his will. You know, in the last 150 years, Jews have been coming back home, however. They were scattered to the four corners of the earth, but now they're in the process of returning to the land of their forefathers. Back in 1897, the first Zionist Congress took place in Basel, Switzerland. A journalist from Austria, Theodor Herzl, pulled together a gathering of Jews there in Switzerland for the purpose of considering the possibility of trying to bring all the Jews from all the four corners of the earth back to the homeland of their forefathers, back into the land of Israel. 
Well, out of 108 nations of the world over the last 100 and some years, Jews have been coming home. And my dear friend, this is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. When you go to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37 and verse 7, it's the prophecy about the valley of dry bones. God takes the prophet Ezekiel to a valley of dry bones some 2,500 years ago, and I believe it was a literal valley. And as they looked out into this valley full of dry bones, the Lord said to Ezekiel, can these bones come together? Well, Ezekiel said, Lord, you know, what do you want me to do? And the Lord told him to preach unto the bones. And the bones started coming together right before him. Now, those bones represent the whole house of Israel. You see, these dry bones in the valley would actually be apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is that form used in Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Revelation, where the Lord will use a symbol to communicate an absolute truth. And then you find another passage of Scripture that defines what it's talking about. The bones in Ezekiel 37, 7, according to verse 11, would be the whole house of Israel, and God would bring them from all the four corners of the earth back into their land. Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 11 to 30, the Lord says, I will, I will find my people, I will bring them back into the land. The reason the Lord does that, according to Ezekiel 36, 22, he said, when I could swear by nothing greater, I swore by my name, and for my holy name's sake, I will bring these people, my Jewish people, back into the land of their forefathers. In fact, speaking of the land, chapter 36 talks about the land 35 times, and it says that the Jewish people will receive this land that God has promised to give them. We're talking about what is the state of Israel, but In the future, they will receive 10 times what they have today. God has made a promise. It's the land covenant in Deuteronomy chapter 30. They indeed will receive the land. But wait a minute now. Let's look at verse 8 of chapter 37. And then as Ezekiel preached, the flesh came on the bones. That's the restoration of a Jewish state. You see, Bible prophecy is being fulfilled and will be fulfilled. The bones have come together. That's the regathering of the Jewish people. Now the flesh is on the bones. That's the restoration of a Jewish state. Ultimately, they will be regenerated. That's when the breath of life is breathed into them. Ezekiel 37 verses 9 and 10. But two-thirds of that Bible prophecy is in the process of being fulfilled. They have been regathered. They have been restored as a nation. And the Israeli elections are solid evidence that Bible prophecy is being fulfilled. And that then means that the rapture, which the Bible talks about as the next event in God's calendar of prophetic events, will happen. That's when Jesus calls each and every Christian into the heavenlies to be with him. And my friend, the rapture could actually happen at any moment. And having said that, there's nothing left for me to say except let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.